Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back. Episode 59 of Freight 360. Ben, good morning. Good morning, sir. We're going to have a good discussion this morning. I'm, I'm excited yeah, to get today it. we're going to talk about non-competes, and this is going to be dual side. So we're going to look at if you're an employee that has a non-compete or has or had a non-compete, you know, maybe you left a job or looking at leaving a job. And then also, let's say you're an agency owner or a licensed broker, and you've got folks underneath you, and you want to know, should I use a non-compete? And uh, we're going we're to look at it. So, all right, if you're a first-time listener... Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us that review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Those reviews and rankings and subscribers, that helps us rank higher and reach a larger, broader audience to share more material. So we appreciate all the reviews we've gotten and all the subscribers. Make sure to refer us out to any of your friends in the industry. I've seen our, our podcast now popping up across social media, anywhere from Facebook to Reddit. So I do appreciate all the love and support recently. Also, we did recently um, upgrade the webpage, freight360.net. There's a new content section. So far, we've got the produce calendar in there. Now there's a video section, which has uh, been one of your newly recorded videos on how to get started as a broker, agent, or dispatcher. Um, and then also we added a blog section. I've, I've been uploading some blogs a few a week here. So um, great content, whether you like to watch it as a video, listen as a podcast, read blogs, or watch videos. We have, you know, I think I just repeated myself on one of those, or if you like to download stuff, we got all kinds of great stuff in there. Check it out, freight360.net. All right, before we get into non-competes, got to do a quick sports update here. We're going to keep it brief. My bills are on a two-game losing streak, but that's okay. The loss on Monday night against the reigning Super Bowl champs really did not hurt Buffalo. I don't think anyone in Buffalo really thought we would win. The professional... Uh, analysts said that Buffalo had more to gain from a win than Kansas City had to lose from a loss. So, you know, a little disappointed in the offense of the Bills. And I think Tennessee really exposed the Bills' uh, weakness on the running game. So, um, enough said. We got a few undefeated teams. Seattle Seahawks in the NFC. Tennessee Titans are looking great. I think Tennessee's probably the number one team right now. And then, Ben, your Pittsburgh Steelers. My boys, Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes. Yeah. So that being said, World Series is going on. The Dodgers, they won the first game. Um, that was last night because we recorded on Wednesday. So that was a Tuesday night game um, off against uh, Tampa Bay. So fun little fact, NFL and Major League Baseball here, Clayton Kershaw and Stafford from the NFL quarterback, right? These two guys, I didn't know it. It was popping up all over social media. They went to high school together, grew up. Actually, they were like little kids together playing Playing soccer and Pee-wee. baseball and all that stuff. So, Pee Wee football. That was down. Is that what it Dallas, says? Dallas, right? Highland Park. Yeah, Dallas, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Dallas, exactly. So, uh, hey, and who who would have known these two growing up together become two of the highest paid major league sports players? So, fun stuff think? there. Other news on the NFL, real quick. Um, the Miami, <clears throat> excuse me, the Miami Dolphins looking. Fairly good, but Ryan Fitzpatrick is is now being benched, and they're bringing Tua in. So the first overall draft pick from the this last year's draft, Tua 
Tagovailoa. I can never pronounce his name right. Um, getting out there for the three and three Dolphins in the next game they've got there. So I'm excited to see how this rookie plays. And um, we've seen Joe Burrow out there so far this year for Cincinnati. Now it's it's a matter of how can uh, how can Tua do so. Good stuff. Anything happening in golf or anywhere else around the uh, sports world? I didn't, I didn't watch too much of it. No updates on my end in regards to golf. I didn't even catch much this weekend. Fair enough. Well, cool. Let's get into it. Let's get into non-competes. So this is a hot topic. And I will, I will say as a, uh, as a starting disclaimer, Ben, you and I are not lawyers. Right. None of what we discuss here today is is going to be constituted as legal advice. We always recommend that you reach out to a lawyer to get your own professional guidance. And as it relates to that, if you do want a referral, I mean, Nate and I have got some good connections, would be happy to connect you with somebody. If you do have a specific question, if you've got a specific instance that you want to walk through, um, you know, we can hope I hope hopefully help guide you in the right direction to speak with somebody that can give you some actionable stuff. This is really based on our experiences, what we've learned, what we've experienced. And hopefully this gives you some general information on how to navigate this world. Absolutely. So, and to, to broaden that, how we're going to reference this episode. So um, this is our own experience. Okay. This is real stuff. So in my, in my uh, tenure in the industry of brokerage, I have helped a lot of folks become agents and they have had situations where they were part of a non-compete. There's a lot of gray area to it. And me, myself, I was subject to a non-compete and I went through the legal process of that. So um, Ben, I know that you as an, as a previous employee of a larger company, you've dealt with the non-compete. So this is also, this is all real world discussion here. All right. And I have, I get questions like this multiple times a week from people that have a non-compete. They think they have a non-compete. They're not sure. They haven't really seen their paperwork. So we're going to get into it. We're going to do some, some definitions first on what the different clauses are in an employment contract. Well, before we go into those, and I, and I, I like that we start there, but can, let's just generally talk about what a non-compete does for a company and what it does for an individual, right? Like what does it protect a company from? Like why would a company even want a non-compete? Yeah, that's a that's a great, great question. Great point. So a non-compete, the, really the purpose of it is, is to protect their business. So the reason that a company would want an employee to sign a non-compete is so if that employee ever leaves, it will protect that company from any business leaving with that employee. So basically, in a nutshell, it'll tell you, don't go work for a competitor, don't take your business with you, go sit on the sidelines for a year. And their their intent is really to be able to take that however long it is, year, two years, and try to retain that business that the employee brought on and have a new account manager or sales rep assigned to that business. Um, so that's the intent behind it. It protects the employer from business being taken away from an employee that they paid a salary and trained. Right. Think about that. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, if you, if you own a business and you're building a business and you want to train people and bring them on, right? Like you also in some way need to protect what you're doing. You're investing a lot of time and a lot of resources and money in training said individuals. I mean, what's to stop you from just training people, giving them a salary. Once they learn how to do the job, they walk across the street and they want to compete with you. I mean, so, I mean, there are legit reasons why and why you would need to, or would want to protect your business, you know, absolutely these things. How do you grow if you're constantly training people and sending them out into the, you know, environment to just compete against you? So, absolutely. So, so let's get into the four main clauses of the 
really it's I want to call it the non-compete, but the, the non-compete itself is one of the clauses. So in an employee's employment contract, there will typically be some clauses that define post-employment or actually during employment regulations or limitations of what that employee can and cannot do. So the four big ones we're going to talk about are the non-compete clause, the non-solicitation clause, the confidential information clause, and the works made for hire clause. Now, if you're an employee and you think you have a non-compete, I would highly encourage you to take a look at your employment paperwork and at least read through what yours or how yours is written so you understand what you signed and what you agreed to and what you might be facing if you decide to leave that company and potentially um, enter that gray area world of violating potentially that non-compete. So like I said, the first one is the non-compete. And in a nutshell, what this states is that during whatever time frame the non-compete is written for, it's usually during employment and then for up to maybe a year or two after employment, you cannot go work for a competitor. Okay. This has nothing to do with taking business. This is just working for a competitor. It's a non-compete. So I'm going to read an example and I'll post this up on our content section of the website. This actually comes from, I think it's HR 360 is a website that has a lot of free information. We'll share it up there and reference them. But this example non-compete clause, I'm going to read it verbatim. It states that, where are we? Covenant not to compete. You agree that at no time during the term of your employment with the company, you will engage in any business activity which is competitive with the company, nor work for any company which competes with the company. For a period of, and this example says one year, immediately following the termination of your employment, you will not for yourself or on behalf of any other person or business enterprise engage in any business activity which competes with the company within blank miles of the facility in which you were employed. That was a mouthful, but I will tell you what it did good. All right. It defined very specifically what the competing means a time frame of one year, and then it yep. even has a spot to put a mileage or a radius of the company's facility in there. And we'll get more into what makes a non-compete strong versus kind of vague and too weak, but that's a fairly well-written example. And, and the other side of that too, is that wherever they're written, it's typically to the state. These aren't written, you know, like in any ways, like on like a federal level, they don't typically cross state lines. That doesn't mean that you still can't be taken to court in the state in which you had an agreement. Absolutely. At the end of the day, what is any any legal matter or ju- or I guess any kind of situation that goes in front of a court or a judge is all subjective. It's what case can you make as the defendant and what case can your previous employer make as the prosecutor, right? Right. And this isn't this isn't criminal, right? This is civil no. law, which means it's only as good as a company's willingness to enforce it. If they yes. don't come and they don't challenge it and you go and do this, like you're not going to get arrested by your local, you know, sheriff or the local county guy for going to work somewhere else because of this agreement. This just allows the company basically to have retribution or to enforce it if they want to. It's it's the yep, yep. it's basically their ability to enforce this if they want to go and protect those assets, right? Absolutely. So that's non-compete. Now let's talk about non-solicit. So you may have both, you may have one or just the other. They usually come together though as a kind of a married couple. Mm-hmm. So the in a nutshell, the the solicitation clause is not about working for a competitor, it's about taking that business 
with you or trying to take customers with you. So I'm going to read again verbatim an example from this this, uh, agreement that we'll post on our website. The non-solicitation clause states, during the term of your employment and for a period of one year immediately after or thereafter, you agreed not to solicit any employee or independent contractor of the company on behalf of any other business enterprise, nor shall you induce any employee or contractor associated with the company to terminate breach of employment, yada, yada, yada. And then it goes on to customer solicitation for a period of one year, blah, blah, blah. You shall not directly or indirectly disclose to any person, firm, or corporation the names or addresses of any of the customers or clients of the company or of any information pertaining to them. And it goes on. There's a lot more to it. But the key note there is it's not just customers. This talks about taking employees. So let's say you were to leave a company and you're like, oh, I'm going to go start my own business. Well, you can't take customers with you and you can't take employees or coworkers with you. It's interesting. And and these are really, I mean, in all honesty, the assets of a brokerage, right? It's the relationships. The relationships we talk a lot about and the ways to establish them and how to you know, get more of them. Those are the assets of that brokerage. It's not just the accounts receivable, it's the people they've trained and it's the relationships they've had. I was listening to an interview last week on freight waves and they were interviewing a couple of shippers. And the one of these large shippers had said, you know, what they learned throughout their tenure, and this guy was in business 20 some years and one of the largest shippers in the country. And he said, we view our reps as basically extensions of our company you know, that rep at whoever that company is. They said almost to the fact that like, we don't even really pay attention so much to the company they work for. We just care about that individual because they know our operations so well that we know how valuable they are and we treat them as such. Now, from the brokerage's point of view that, you know, employs that individual, trains that individual, gives them that, that individual, the tools, the processing and all of the things in the back office to make sure that guy can do his job you know, they need to protect that. And that's that asset. And this is how they do it. Absolutely. And I'll make this point now and we'll, we'll get more into it in a little bit, but the non-compete, non-solicit, I'm just going to call it non-compete just to, you know, for, to make it a summarized phrase here or idea, but the non-compete is primarily used as a scare tactic more than anything else, because the actual legal enforcement of it varies state by state and different judges will look at the the terms of it, the length of it, uh, how broad it is versus uh, specific in particular. Um, but I think, you know, my experience from people I've talked to and myself, they work probably more than 95% of the time solely from the fact that it scares employees and they do not go and even attempt to violate it or fight it because they don't want to deal with the legal part of it. Yep. So it works. It works overall. Um, right. in California. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So a lot of different states actually, but California very specifically. So let's look at uh, the third clause is the confidential information. I don't have a specific example of this, but this clause, and this is legitimate in my opinion. This is releasing confidential information after you leave. And this is usually in perpetuity. So there's no one year, two year time frame. This is forever. So let's say you worked at a startup. They had a proprietary software system or pricing module or something like that. Something that was very, very confidential and it was a trade secret to them and them only. This says that I don't care where you go, where you work or how long you've been away from our company. You can never disclose this confidential information. It's a trade secret and it could cause damages against us if it is released to somebody else. 
And this is a, you know, if you're, if you're an employer, a new brokerage startup that's hiring people, this is really, really important. If you've got a proprietary TMS, or if you've got a proprietary pricing matrix or something like that, that is all confidential information. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, they're protecting their IP, their intellectual property, right? And it's, yep. you know, I always, when I used to hear this, it would remind me of like, you know, the Heinz 57 recipe. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. And you think about like, that's it, right? The secret to Coca-Cola. That's what they're talking about. Like, that's what makes their brand, that brand, that's what recognizable. In their world, that's their taste. You know, in transportation, that could be how you deal, develop your operations, how your workflow works within your company. It's not necessarily technology. It can just be the way a company does business that they do differently than others. And if that's something they're trying to protect because that's their competitive advantage, that also falls underneath here. And that being said, if you go in front of a a judge, you're going to have to, as an employer, you're going to have to clearly explain and make an argument for the fact that what you're claiming is intellectual property, why it is intellectual property. So you can't just say, oh, this customer or, you know, for, or even if you look at the non-solicit, this customer right here, they didn't know about them until they came here and they're a customer of ours. It's like, well, can you find that information freely on Google? Yeah. You know, if you stole a pricing list where you want to bid, yeah, you're, you're, you're running a very, very dangerous territory. But just simply having the name and contact info for a customer, like if, let's say a Walmart or a Costco, big name, like everyone's heard of these companies. That's not intellectual property. The way that you won, you know, 100 lanes on a bid, by the way you price it out, yes. Well, this That's is also a gray this, zone. This is also a lot of cases like points of contact, who you're speaking to. And I know, I know that's probably a very gray area. And, you know, back to our, you know, I guess our disclaimer at the beginning, neither of us are attorneys, but I've seen people lose their jobs over divulging who their customer's info is. I've seen people lose their jobs because they sent exactly what you were saying, bid sheets to a personal email, um, sent info to an outside source other than their company because the company, there's a reason they have that and they want to protect that. They can't have these things leaking out because, you know, those are their assets. That's how they protect them. Without those things, they can't continue to protect or build a moat around their business from other competitors that want to steal business away from them. Yeah, that that's that's a great point. Very good. Also, point. by the way, when you think about that context, that's another reason why you think some of all of these also kind of work together. If I own a business and Nate owns a business across the street and I am just leaps and bounds ahead of him in market share and profitability and I'm just killing it, right? What's Nate going to do? If he can't figure out how I do business, he might try to start soliciting my employees. Hey, I'll pay you a little bit more. Hey, why don't you come work for me? which might seem on the face just something like benign, like, hey, it's not a big deal. But now all of a sudden, maybe this person's starting to tell Nate exactly how we have such higher margins, how we maintain that, how we're able to grab so much market share. And that's a lot of the information that we're talking about that falls under one of these three categories. Yep. And so there is a fourth caveat category here. And this is not always in everybody's employment contract. I know it wasn't mine and I didn't realize it at first, but this is the works made for hire clause. And to, for me, it's interesting that it's worded that way. The works made for hire. What this really means is anything that you've produced while working for that company belongs to that company. So 
weird name, but that if you actually read the clause, that is what it says. So pretty much anything that you have created or produced or generated while working for or on that company's uh, dime or on the clock for them, that now belongs to that company technically. Now, if they want to enforce that or not, you're usually getting really thick into the weeds at that point, but it is there. So let's say you developed a, um, you know, marketing document or a, I don't know, some kind of process there. Like yeah. maybe you created some kind of a, a funnel pipeline process to, to hit customers or prospects X amount of times, 10 different ways. The company technically owns that process, even though you created it because you created it while working for them. I ran into this that, I mean, that was definitely an instance on some things and some things that I've developed where we mostly see this in business is in like intellectual property, IT, it's very prevalent. So let's say you work for, and I think this may be somewhere just an easier to understand. Like if you worked for Intel or IBM and you developed your own widget just on your own while you were at work, even though it was solely developed in your head in front of you with no collaboration of anybody else, most cases, that's why this exists so that, you know, IBM can now say that, yeah, you know, I own this invention that Ben came up with because he developed it while he was on the clock, while he worked for us. And that's now ours. And that's why that exists. Yeah. And you make a good point. So technology companies, technology companies is definitely a place where non-competes tend to be more prevalent and more applicable. Freight brokerage, on the other hand, it gets a little gray. It's, it's kind of redundant. It's, you know, different states look at it differently. So, um, and we're going to talk about that. So let's look at really the next part of this is how do you navigate this when you leave a job or if you're looking to leave a job? And I always say, number one, make sure you read your employment contract and share that with a lawyer or a legal, some kind of legal expert that can give you legal advice and people ask the question, I'm like, hey, do you have a non-compete? And they're like, uh, I think so. I don't remember. I don't have a copy of it. And they're like, well, if I go to ask for it, it might sound a little suspicious. And you're right. It might sound a little suspicious. So what do you think? Is, is there a way to tactfully be able to or surreptitiously be able to get a copy of your employment contracts? I feel like a larger company, you should be able to go to HR and confidentially ask for it, but you never know whose buddies outside of work yeah. is going to tell who what. So it's kind of strange. So, I mean, obviously anyone listening to this that is already in the position, I don't know that that's going to help you much, but we will put that out there is that anytime you sign any document, you should always retain a copy of it for your own records. Anytime, always, whether it's in OneDrive, cloud storage costs almost nothing on your Gmail account, and just always keep a record of anything you sign, any document, always. And to Nate's point, I mean, Nate reads a lot of these. I've read a lot of these, but even in both our cases, anytime we would ever have to make a decision, we're going right to an attorney and going, hey, this is what this looks like to me. Can you tell us what it looks like to everybody else and to someone that does this all day? And always there's some insight. There's something that like I didn't see, or, you know, when you really look at it, they go, Hey, you know, this might say this because remember, these are all written so broadly to protect. It's like this throw out a hugely wide net, but that when you realize is the net is only as wide as it is enforceable and yep. to know how enforceable it, it is. Enforceable it is. Right. And to know how actually enforceable it is, you need to speak with an attorney that actually, well, usually practices in that state or is licensed in the state that your non-compete is written in. Absolutely. Um, so, for example, when I left my last job, I had a non-compete. I remembered vaguely signing it when I started there, 
but I didn't know the exact term. So what did I do? I didn't have a copy of it. I asked a coworker or colleague of mine in a similar role. I said, hey, do you have a copy of the, of the employment contract that we signed when we started? So I was able to get a copy of his to at least get... What's that? I waited till there was a new hire and I grabbed the new hire package and I photocopied everything so that I had there a copy. There you go. There you go. And you know, keep in mind, sometimes they get they change and they get updated. Right. Like for example, I've seen multiple non-competes from some big companies and every couple of years they update them and make them a little bit more smart and enforceable because they're catching on. So I, I got a copy of a coworkers and then when I went to leave the company, when I actually my my employment ended. I requested a copy of mine on the way out. And then I was also, they, they were smart enough to know that there's a reason he's asking. And I was also upfront about my intentions and my stance on everything. They also then sent me one in the mail the next day, like overnighted sent from a lawyer and started the whole legal process. So I contacted a lawyer the exact same day and he had advised me on what to do, you know, a quick email to the company on my stance and the terms of the end of the relationship. And then I immediately went on the, um, my full-time job became understanding my non-compete and the legal battle that was ahead of me. And I worked with a lawyer and I paid somebody to draft up responses and then also look at not only what was I potentially doing that violated the contract, but what was my employer doing that violated my employment contract. And it kind of went both ways. So having two sides of the story, that's going to give you a little bit better of a better of odds to, um, you know, to, to get through this kind of thing. So examples of what I've seen, especially recently in 2020, where the employee has a leg to stand on, think about the COVID pandemic, right? We've had people that were um, sent home and then they were, um, you know, told you're coming back to the office when their state or CDC or whatever said it's not advisable. And the, the small brokerage owner was telling them, you got to come back here. And they're like, I don't feel comfortable. So they were fired and then slapped with the non-compete. And it's like, well, you, you know, you might have your own case or leg to stand on here. So there's a lot that goes into it. There is too. And then, and I know in some of the cases and conversations throughout my career that I've had with attorneys is the other piece that they know is they know the precedents. They know, if you're working with a company that crosses state lines, they know where some of these states may not have upheld some portions of it, where some states don't uphold any of it. And just like Nate brought up, there are also or can be situations that led up to your departure from said company or future departure that may throw some liability on the other side of the fence. It's a very, yeah, you, you got to... Well, and I say you got to do this, but the lawyer, the, a good attorney will do this for you. They will paint the picture of what your case looks like. So if you have a fairly black and white case, let's say you work at a company, um, you grew a book of business on their dime and you're like, screw it. I want to leave and go make more money somewhere else. You have probably the least likelihood of being able to do that successfully. Now it depends on what state you're in. Cause there's a lot of what they call right to work states. Um, for example, California, as we know, was it two years ago they had this where essentially non-competes are just, they don't exist anymore. They cannot exist. Yeah, I was listening to something again. I dug into this again over the weekend and kind of prepping for this interview is there are aspects of when you sell a business or purchase a business where they'll still uphold those in California, but almost in every case as an employee, you can go and follow and pursue whatever career you want, regardless of 
the non-compete. Yeah. And so let's take a look at it from a, an ethical standpoint. All right. And this is, kind of, I, I try to look at it through this lens whenever I talk to somebody who has a non-compete. Um, did you, the company you're leaving, did you bring your own business in there? And are you only taking your own business out of there? Or are you leaving all your old business there and looking to pursue just a new job and start from scratch? And in my eyes, I don't see anything wrong with that. And depending on the state you live in, I think in most time, most cases, uh, and a, a judge will not see a problem with that either. Because who's going to tell you? Let's say you were, let's say you were let go or laid off because your broker downsized during the pandemic shutdown. And there's been a lot of this. Do you think a judge is really going to tell somebody that they can't go work somewhere else and provide for their family? And especially, let's say you've been in this industry for 10 years and this is all that you know and this is all that you're good at. You're not necessarily going to go steal business or destroy that old company, but you just want to go work and provide for your family. It's, it's that simple. And that is, that is kind of the, the down and dirty way that you can look at it. But if you're being facetious and you're, and you're going to go do something really dirty and say, I'm going to screw this old company over. I just don't like what they're doing. I'm going to go take all their employees and all their customers. and I'm just going to go make a ton of money somewhere else. You're asking for trouble. Absolutely. Sound about right? I, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah. All right. So that's a good look at what to do when you're leaving a job. Ben, do you have any insight or experience on that one? Well, I, what it, it reminds me a lot of a story that I ran into where um, it was one of my colleagues that I had worked with. He had been with this employer and this logistics company, you know, directly out of high school, you know, came in, came there out of high school, you know, hustled, built a book of business. He had, you know, lost his customers to no fault of his own great broker, one of the most educated and, you know, just well-rounded brokers, like knew what he was doing, was really good operationally and sales wise. But, you know, throughout that 10 years, he had a family, he now has three, four kids. So, you know, the sales route wasn't necessarily a good fit. He couldn't spend, you know, the 50, 60, 70 hours a week. So he moved into an ops role. Well, what happened was he was supporting for another broker, right? Running an entire team. And that broker lost his business through also no fault of their own. The company just ended up being acquired by somebody else and they ceased to exist. Well, a lot of these people, their comps, even operationally, are tied to performance and the amount of business. So, you know, he went from making, I would say, he was probably making around 85 to 95 a year on average, you know, just under the six-figure marks, but really good for where he lived, for his family and supporting it. Once the company lost that business, you know, he was making like 40, 45 grand a year. But he has this non-compete and he's like, you know, and I remember talking to him candidly. He's like, Ben, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't bring enough money in. I'm not in the driver's seat, nor do I have the ability to just start acquiring customers. I'm in ops. I can't live off this. And he went back to the employer and, you know, he went, I don't want to say like hat in hand, but was just very candid and vulnerable and honest about the situation. And he said, look, I know we, you know, enforce these things. I know we don't let these things go. But absolutely, like I'm in a situation where I don't know what else to do. It's all and, he knew. It's his only, his only job that he exactly. knows. The only profession he's ever known, he's very good at it. He was very ethical and he was somebody that always put others before himself and they, they worked out something that worked for them. And, you know, whether that's finding a different role within the other company or maybe the company saying, hey, maybe we'll find you some position with another company we're affiliated with. The point is, if you go back and you're honest and you're open about what the issue is, there are a lot of things that can be solved. There are a lot of things. You doing what you had mentioned, being deceitful and trying to this. And I think a lot of people in some instances, they feel slighted or they have some yep. resentment. 
you've got to get over that first and accept that if you're acting in spite, it's likely if it's not going to burn you now, we'll burn you in the long term. But if you operate in good faith, even going back to the employer and saying, hey, like this is the situation, you know, what can we do? I would say in a lot of cases, they're probably going to try to do the right thing for you. And we'll talk about, you know, I, I want to get on what makes a non-compete strong. But after that, we're going we're gonna to talk about how to negotiate the non-compete, both on the exit side and on the entry side. So um, that's a really good example, though. So let's talk about what makes a non-compete good. I'm never going to call them ironclad because every state is, is going to treat them differently. But what, is, what would be considered a reasonable non-compete? So the example that we write off, it lists a geographical radius. Yep. And it lists the time frame, and it explicitly states what you can and cannot do. So I have seen some of the most common non-competes that get thrown out do not have a geographical radius. It just says anywhere in the United States or it blanketly lists like 20 states. And it's like, I've never seen a single one actually held up in court. It's it's enough to scare employ, employees so it's effective, but it's not really ironclad. Now, here's what I'd recommend, and it's going to be case by case. But well, before you go past that, the other thing that I've seen with some of those, when they're written that broadly, the courts in a lot of cases, I've and I've, I've heard of this, and I know people that have had this, like they're thrown out entirely. Oh, Instead of them, absolutely. Yep. they're just like, hey, this Whole is too broad. Right. It's just no good at all. Yeah. Absolutely. So if if you want to if you want to have your stuff squared away, so let's say you are the one hiring employees, here's what I recommend. I think legitimately six months and like fifty miles should be plenty. All right. If a, if an employer or if an employee leaves and you've got six months and they're going to be honest and stay out of the game, that is plenty enough time for you to attempt to salvage the relationships that they built while they were working for you. If you can't do it in six months, you're not going to be able to do it in two years. All right. You should be able to do it in like a month That's or a three great months. Point. So it, it's that simple. All right. It's, ethic, it's ethically reasonable to do that. Um, the radius. All right. If this person's going to go, if they're moving and that's why they're leaving the job, like let's say it's a husband wife combo. The wife is a broker um, and the husband takes a job out of state or let's say, who knows, maybe it's a military. Maybe the guy or the girl is in the military and they're moving and the spouse is a broker and Hey, I got to leave my job because we're getting relocated yeah. to this other state. Are you going to really tell them they can't go work because they're getting moved? Like, like, come on. Like, so be realistic. If they're going to go work down the street for your competitor, yeah, it's a different story. But you made a good point too. And I kind of think that like, that's back to like, if you think about like doing the right thing is, Hey, if somebody's moving more than 50 miles away or willing to drive two and a half hours, like that's super unlikely. If they have to leave because, you know, they are moving that far down the road. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a reasonable exception. So actually I'm going to give you a real example. I had a, a guy I talked to last week. Um, he, Still, I think he's still working for the company. Company is, he's in Texas. Texas is massive, obviously. Uh, lives in Texas, worked in Texas at a brokerage. They shut down for COVID, told all the employees that they're going to be remote and they're potentially going to stay with a remote option moving forward because it just it was working out. So him and his wife moved like three hours away to a different city in Texas. And now they're like, all right, everyone's coming back to work. We're going to let you work remote all good. And now they're trying to tell him, we want you to come back into the office. And he's like, well, I moved. Like it's, <laughs> we've been shut down for over six months. We, yeah. my wife and I moved and 
we're three hours away. There's no office in this new city that I'm in. What am I supposed to do? And they're basically going to tell them like, you're out of a job. And oh, by the way, you can't go work anywhere else. And I'm like, then eh, you've got a little bit of, you've got some leg to stand on there. Those are the gray areas. When an employer does wrong by the employee, I will always err on the side of the employee for the most part. And that's, that's really interesting. It always kind of, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time wrapping around, wrapping my head around why the company would take that stance in the first place. Yeah. I guess maybe just a long shot to like, but, but why? Like, I don't even it, understand what it they It sounds would like a lack that. of trust in my opinion. And if yeah. that's the company's culture, that's their culture. And maybe you don't want to work from anyway. Um, here, here's what I recommend. All right. If you're going to, if you're going to build a non-compete for your employees, here's what I think is reasonable. All right. I said the six months and I said the, you know, 50 miles, but also if they're coming from another company or they've got their own business that they're bringing in, that employee, whatever they bring with them should be theirs and should be excluded from any kind of clause like that. And that is what, that is what will attract good talent. All right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I think it is reasonable if you say, Hey, I'm going to furnish you an office space and we're going to train you and you're going to learn our system and we're going to pay you all this and commission, Um, bring your business. It's yours. But if you start working on our house accounts or our corporate customers, or you start acquiring more business through us, just leave it with you. Leave it with us if you decide to leave ever. I think that's fair. I, I do as well. I actually ran into this. I had a, of a, a guy that I'm working with right now had a similar situation where he's gone to a few companies that, and in all honesty, he was told they were going to provide resources and do some things and develop some things for you know his book of business that just never happened. So you know he empty went promises, to man. Exactly. Story. Went to the next place and he was going to go to work for one of the larger three PLs. And that's what prevented him from actually making the jump was, you know, his book was worth, we'll just say, take home to him, you know, a quarter million a year. That's what he built over a decade that he's been doing it. That's his livelihood. He's like, look, I'm going to come. I want to bring this. I want to bring my tools. I want to help you go get more business. But at the end of the day, I'm not a, I'm not comfortable with my asset that I'm bringing to your company now being covered by your non-compete if this doesn't work out. Right. You know, and that's the question you have to ask yourself is what are you protecting? What do you need to protect? And are you giving up more than you need to? And what are you getting in return for it? I couldn't agree with you more. So let's uh let's segue right into the 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 negotiation part of it here. So um I want to lead with this when we talk about how to negotiate the non-compete. All right. If you decide that you want to leave your company, you need to analytically look at a, what I will call a break even cost analysis. How much are you willing to spend on legal advice and a, uh, an employment attorney who's specialized in this field. Right. And then how much is that going to bring you in for earnings and income and commission if you do move to another company? So if you're a small broker that doesn't make a whole lot of money, it might not be worth it to fight it. But at the same time, companies, you've got a bigger target on your head if you're a large producing, high producing broker versus someone that's been there six months, built a small book and wants to leave. You're maybe still on the radar, but not as much as the guy that's doing 100K a month in, in profit. So- you know, and some big companies, they have internal legal departments whose sole job is to make sure that these non, non-competes are attempted to be enforced. And I'm sure you've seen that with, with your previous work. 
Absolutely. And, and you think about this, right? Think about what they're doing and what any company is or the company you work at, right? Think about the amount of money and resources spent on training, coaching, acquiring, getting new shippers, right? And then that's the other aspect of this whole business is it? that's why these are so valuable is that for that broker that works with that shipper, understanding all of these nuanced differences and how the shipper operates, how they load, all of their SOP, right? That's super valuable to the shipper, right? But these companies also are very aware that, you know, the valuable part of their company is this broker that now understands that shipper, right? So how else do you protect that? You spent in some cases, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in other supporting departments that help support that broker, get, maintain and service that business. And then at the end of the day, what are your protections? So, and just like we said, there's a, there's a break-even analysis on if you're going to go um, potentially violate your non-compete as the company, there's a break-even on how much do you want to spend to protect yourself, mm-hmm. right? And so I personally have been through a non-compete battle where uh, the, the lawyer, not even my lawyer, but the company's lawyer said that it's a matter, in his opinion, it was a matter of who wanted to spend more money. And that mm-hmm. was who would win if if it went down a certain path. And that's um, a lot of the cases. Like, yeah. That's a lot of the time. So let's say, you know, the, the average licensed broker is a smaller company though. So let's say you don't have the time and resources to try and track down someone that just left your company. You've got to pick and choose your battles. Is it really worth your time? And honestly, if somebody leaves and a customer goes with them, you might've done a bad job on your end from a corporate standpoint or from a business owner standpoint of also injecting yourself as a relational piece to that equation. And I think that's just as important as you've gotta be, you know, if your reps are solely cradle to grave and they're handling accounts and you're not, as a business owner, you're not involved in that account at all, you're doing yourself a disservice by not being an extra point of contact involved in that relationship that will potentially retain that business for you. I think things, and I, and I learned this back in college in regards to just any negotiation, it should be equitable on, on kind of both sides of the fence based on where yep. they are. And these things change over time, right? You may win in the negotiation or lose in the short run, but in the long run, it may play out or vice versa. If it's super lopsided though, it's likely that's not going to play out well for you in the long run. I mean, if you're favored so heavily and you feel like in some cases or your workers feel they're being exploited based on however the comp set up, that's likely what are the seeds of the problem later on. These things can be addressed and they should be addressed because even if one person leaves, there's an issue there that you likely need to deal with systemically to make sure you're maintaining and fostering good, healthy relationships with employees. Absolutely. So on negotiating, I think that we talked about on the way in, hey, these are my accounts. I don't want them to be subject to this. On the way out, I have seen people negotiate the time of it and or certain accounts because they, they said, hey, to prevent the legal battles and the drama and a big relational fallout, let's just agree on the way out that I won't touch these accounts. And I will, you know, for, for six months or for a year, I'm not going to touch A, B, and C. Um, I'm only going to, you know, or I'm going to leave and go build my own new book up and I won't talk to anybody that that company does any business with. Just try to negotiate. I've had somebody take a two year and negotiate down to a six month and they became a successful agent after that point. So let me ask you this, Nate. I think a lot of our listeners out there are like, you know what? I I, want to go work in this industry. I just want to get a job. 
I'm going to be signing whatever they give me because I, I haven't found that job yet. You know, what, are, what is our advice to somebody out there in that situation? Well, a couple of things. Number one, read everything before. And it's always good to have a second opinion from either someone in the industry that's been through this or a legal expert or both. All right. Uh, so definitely read through it. Make sure you understand the lawyer. If you hire a lawyer to review a non-compete for you, they should have the heart of a teacher and explain to you what each clause means. Kind of like we gave you a broad example on the show today. Um, a legal, a lawyer or an attorney is going to be able to give you a much better breakdown on where that would apply potentially given your situation. Number two is to keep copies and records of everything. And if you have any kind of agreement outside of the regular terms of your employment contract, whether it's um, via email or an addendum, you need to retain that stuff in case it ever comes up later. So that's my, that's definitely my advice is to get the, the second professional opinion on it and to keep records. Do you have anything else you want to add on that? No, I, I think that's, I think that's about as much as we're, we're ever going to be able to cover in this, you know, not being yeah. an attorney, but I think the big piece is, you know, think about also, I mean, if you are interviewing with a company and you feel like maybe the non-competer, what they're asking you to sign makes you uncomfortable. I mean, there's nothing preventing you from also looking around. If you're good enough for one company, you, you could likely probably interview and create a couple other options that may be a better fit for you. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to finish up before the Q and I'm going to finish up with a couple of, um, couple of quick points here. So if you are a W2 employee, it is reasonable that you can expect to sign a non-compete. It is also reasonable that you can expect to be able to negotiate that to an extent. Now, if you are an independent agent, 1099, you should never sign a non-compete. And if you run a company and you're going to hire it, or I shouldn't even say hire, if you're going to contract agents, you should never ask them to sign a non-compete. That they are an independent contractor, and that is just setting a very, very bad precedent. So the whole point is you should be able to offer a good enough package and program that your your independent contracted agents don't want to leave you. So it's that simple. Uh, the other things. So to answer quick questions, is a non-compete enforceable? It depends. All right. Um, are non-competes legal? It depends. You know, there's there's no there's no clear black and white answer on that. And I remember asking, I've got attorneys in my family and even the attorney that I hired through our referral for, uh, to prevent a conflict of interest. I asked like, is this going to hold up? And he said, it depends. I don't know. It all mm -hmm. depends on how much you want to spend, how much headache you want to do. And I'm like, what if we, you know, what if we go and do this? And he's like, well, you might be stirring up the pot and asking for trouble. So there, every situation is different. Consult the attorney. And I recommend use those high octane, high powered, experienced, number one top producing employment attorneys that have a good track record of success. Don't just hire some Joe Schmo buddy of yours that just graduated law school. No offense to agree. any I can agree with that that more. young attorneys. I mean, it's going to cost you a little more, but at the very least, I mean, what's that other old saying? It's like, if you, if you think the top guy's expensive, wait till you hire a cheap guy and see what you spend. <laughs> Kowalski proverb. There I do it. I can it just, just popped it. I like it. That's a good point though. You get what you pay for. You, you, if you go cheap, you're going to end up paying a lot in legal fee or a lot in probably settlement. So, um, yeah. All right. Good stuff. There, there's a lot more questions. So let's get into the, the Q and A. If, if anyone has questions on non-competes, shoot them our way. We've gotten some good questions through the websites or through LinkedIn or email. Just let us know. We'll answer the questions. Actually, one of our questions today comes from the website. We'll get to it in a little bit here. Um, First question, this comes from Reddit. Someone asked, um, oh, I think it was a driver or carrier. 
why is a tonu industry standard, but a fallout fee isn't? Actually, no, that was a broker saying that, obviously. So mm-hmm. the broker says, why is it like, okay, I, I have it's a load. double standard, right? Yeah. So I hire a carrier to haul load. Customer cancels the load on me. So now I got to pay a truck order not used. You know, I'd say industry standards about 250 bucks. I got to pay a tonu to this driver because I gave him a load and my customer canceled it. And now I got to pay the carrier. But on the flip side, I hire a carrier, cover this load, then the carrier falls off of it last minute because they got a higher paying load. Why aren't they liable? Why don't they have to, you know, pay me money? And my, I know you have a different answer with Ben than me, but here's my answer. All right. You are the one contracted to pay the carrier, which is therefore why you will still have to pay the carrier something with a, via a tonu. The carrier, how, how are you going to expect them to pay you when they fall off a load when they're never the one paying you? You're the one paying them. So it's a matter of you're not just going to pay them, pay them less or they're not just going to pay you less because they're not the party that's paying you. They're, they're the party getting paid by you. So that's my take because there's no, there's no legitimate or realistic way to recoup that money from the carrier. That's why I think it's not an industry standard. But Ben, you have some kind of a legal side to it. What was your take I'm on it? I'm not saying it's necessarily legal, but I remember the SOP that we always operated. Possibly. Yeah, or that I always operated under was, you know, if you formally dispatch that carrier and they are driving, right, in a direction for you, I mean, you have now contracted that carrier. Like you have taken control of their asset and said, Hey, I need you to drive in this direction. You're going to be loading in whatever, right? That's the point in time at which I would pay a truck order not used. Hey, I've contracted and sent them on their way. If my shipper canceled the load, that's my ability. Now I'm going to go back to my shipper. If I have, you know, dispatched the truck, I'm going to tell my shipper, you owe me that truck order not used. I'm also going to get paid and pass that money right onto the carrier. That's how I protect myself. On the other side, I love the way you looked at that. You're right. Like, you know, the carrier is being employed by you. If somebody doesn't show up to work, they don't owe you money. Um, They just no call, no show. You don't use them again. And that's in any kind of labor. But the interesting thing is it, it was frustrating because, you know, it puts a big burden on you as the broker, especially if it's a last minute fallout that you've got to scramble and then utilize resources to go get another truck. You'd wish there was a case that you could, the way it was explained to me was that the way cargo, the laws that govern cargo was until that cargo is on that vehicle, on that truck, on that trailer, they are not liable in any way. As soon as it hits it, now they're subject to expenses. Yeah, that's the whole, the whole FOB, the freight on board. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it is actually a legal thing where there's FOB origin and FOB destination, and it basically dictates who has possession of the freight. Is it changed hands when it's loaded or when it's delivered. Uh, and that's more of the consignee or the consignee and consigner yeah. and consignee type of relationship. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's but, an interesting warm. But here's the part that I always found really interesting was that if you ever get into the intermodal world, drayage, and you start moving international boxes, if you're tender to load and you don't pick it up on time, you as the broker or the carrier do owe money. You paid demurrage. You are paying that fee for not getting it out. There's a window of free time to move that cargo. And if you don't, you start paying the tab on that. And that is the one instance where carriers will be charged for cargo, even though they haven't actually picked it up. 
It's a very good point. And a lot of that stuff is all contractually written up and any kind of agreement ahead of time. So make sure you know what you are getting involved in when you do certain kind of business. So good stuff though. Um, the next question is on uh, quoting. Should I be quoting via email or quoting via a phone call? If a cust- So let's say a customer sends you a, uh, a quote request. They send it out to their their distro list or to you, whatever, should you call them back or email them back? My quick answer is it depends. What does your customer prefer? And that is all part of the relationship that you establish with them before you start quoting. I would ask, how do you prefer quotes? I can quote you back in two minutes via email. I can call you within 15 minutes. What do you prefer? And I think that's what depends is how do they, what do they prefer as a method of communication? Ben, what's your take? I think that's the first the first aspect that I'm going to look at is, you know, what is their preference in communication? But if I'm selfishly motivated, I always want to be on the phone. Why would I want to be on the phone? One, I can evaluate how that number is received by them. I can base and I can learn a lot about their reaction to it. I can usually gain some insight into what the other quotes were just by the way they react and a few other questions that I'm going to ask when I give them that rate. Also, it's going to give me the ability to hopefully ask for that load. Hey, is this rate good? Any reason why we can't get this moving? Why don't you send that over right now? I want to be the one in the driver's seat like that, that has the ability to take the freight. Sending yep. an email puts you in the back seat. Also, it's allowing the shipper to evaluate your number against everybody else's and guess which one they're going to pick. Absolutely. I agree. So I think if, if you're competing against other brokers, the phone is probably a more effective way for you to put yourself in a position of control in that negotiation. If it's just you and you're the go-to broker for that customer, email probably will suffice. So it all depends. All right. Last question. And uh, this comes from T. Washington. T. Washington visited our website, freight360.net and said, for the past year, I've been working for a freight broker, learning as much as possible regarding the business. The experience has been invaluable. I'm to the point where I'm considered a freight agent 1099 and have been given the green light to begin bringing in shippers for which I will be paid a commission on each load. Your recent podcast on overcoming fear, sales, and objections have been a godsend. Thank you, T. Washington. He continues by saying, my question surrounds business cards. First, are they still relevant? If not, why and how should I market myself and the business? If they are still relevant, should the cards be generic with my name, title, freight agent, and contact information, or should it also include the company for which I am bringing in freight? Thanks for the help. Well, T. Washington, and I don't know if this is a guy or girl, so I shouldn't have said he, but um, we, I think we talked about business cards in the past. Here is my take. Business cards are not as important as you probably think in the brokering world, unless you're going to be in person with somebody. Now, to go a step further to answer the question on branding yourself, it all depends. Should you brand yourself as just you as the independent agent or should you include the agency or the agent-based company that you're an agent for? Um, If the company, if by branding yourself as part of that company, if it's going to add value and reputation and uh, credibility, I think you should definitely add that in there. You can say I'm an authorized agent of whatever or powered by whatever. Um, If they're kind of a no-name company, and you just want to really promote your own name and your own brand, I think, I think just stick with yourself. Ben, what do you think? Uh, same thing. You know, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit in regards to the branding aspect. As far as the business cards, I, I mean, I don't think they are as useful, you know, in today's market anymore. 
I still collect them. I still carry them. I still use them. I use them for references later. So I don't want to say, you know, they aren't used as much as I think the branding aspect is the most important is the company you're working for. Do you want to leverage their brand or do you want to build your own brand? And all of the things that come along with that. Do you want to be doing the marketing effort? Are you going to do the marketing effort? Is anybody going to know who you are? Are they going to look at this? You brought up another point in other episodes is, are they going to look at your name and then see their invoice and go, these are two different companies. What's going on there? Like that makes somebody feel a certain way. I don't know that it's good, but it's going to give some impression. Be intentional about that impression. Think that through before you make the decision. I agree. I, um, I'll be honest, I don't even have a business card currently right now. I, I've, I used to have tons and tons of them in the past. And I, uh, I don't know that I've ever really done anything with them. I think where it was helpful is if I met somebody like out at a golf course or at a bar or just in a social setting and we were in the same industry, I would give them a copy of my business card and we'd swap. And I got customer leads for people that way. They were a shipper or a traffic manager or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great way to get somebody's info and then, you know, just pass your own off. So good stuff. Um, good episode today as a, as a last disclaimer, Ben, you and I are not attorneys. So this is not in any way, shape or form. Is this legal advice or should you use this as actionable things to make decisions based on your legal agreements? Do your own research. All right. So uh, week seven of NFL, the Buffalo Bills are playing at the New York Jets, the spread is negative 13 with the Buffalo Bills favored. So, and the overrunners at like 45. Everyone knows the Bills are going to win this game. It's going to be a slump buster for them. Um, if the Bills don't win this game, it's going to be a disaster and just look terrible. Uh, Buffalo needs a good quick win here. The New York Jets are probably the worst team in NFL history. Maybe worse than the Browns when they lost like they went 0 16 the one year, and I think they lost like 19 games straight or something like that. Um, either way, I'm gonna I'm gonna say like a 31 to 12 game. I don't think the Jets get in the end zone once. I think they get a handful of field goals, and that's really? it. But I think the Bills put up a, a strong, strong uh, offense. Four touchdowns, one uh, field goal for a total of 31 points and 12 to the Jets. Uh, ben Steelers. Do you know how they're playing by any chance? I did hold up forgot. The undefeated Steelers. Ooh, that's right. The reschedule of the Titans game. The Titans this game. is good. Yep. One o'clock. That is a game to watch. Sunday, one o'clock. Steelers are are favored. This is going to be a great game. You got that's that's a must watch game. In case you know the Bills game gets boring and you want to flip the TV over. Watch that one. I'm surprised. Yeah, they didn't move it to Marvel Primetime. Yeah, I, that should be. That should be a flex game. Like make it a nighttime or something. Who knows? So, all right. Good stuff. Final thoughts? I, Anything? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. <laughs> Until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.